Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Anyways, so this morning we are actually, if you've been here with us the last couple of weeks, uh, we have been walking through the series of Acts. Um, and it's been a great series for the past couple of, actually months, I feel like. It's only been a couple of weeks, but we have been walking through Acts, kind of walking through the new church and seeing how God has been growing his church uh, through suffering persecution uh, after Jesus ascended and said, hey, my call is to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So it has been a great sermon series so far. However, in the next couple of weeks, we're actually going to take a break. Now, we actually didn't schedule this, um, but after Dwayne and I talked, the next sermon that we were kind of going to look at through Acts was looking at the deacons um, and how the Lord created the office of deacons. And we thought, you know what, let's just sit on this for the summer. Let's just kind of look and understand what deacons look like, have a better understanding and more robust dialogue about what deacons will look like, and then we'll come back after the summer. Hopefully we'll be able to install some, have a greater understanding for you guys, and be able to explain what those are. Because from my gathering of knowledge between our people, most of you guys didn't grow up with deacons, am I right? Like, who actually knows, like, the office of a deacon and what they do? Anybody in a church that, that had that? Only two? All right, see? So I'm glad that we took this break. So it's going to be good for us. Um, and so this week and next week, if you guys are here, we'll be walking through just kind of standalone sermons. Um, they won't be connected, anything like that. So um, we'll have those the next couple of weeks. And then... The following, after those two weeks, we're going to walk into the sermon series that I'm not going to name because you guys failed me while I was gone the last couple, like a couple weeks ago. How do you let Dwayne name the sermon series hashtag blessed? Like, is this, this isn't Bruno Mars? Like, what's going on? Goodness, I'm gone one week and this is what happens? I thought I had more faith in you all. Anyways, ironically, I will be preaching most of that sermon series. And, and I still have to go with it? It's all right. We, uh, I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not bitter about it or anything. I promise you guys. Now we'll get through it. God will bless it, and uh, we'll be good. So during the summertime, we'll see uh, the Beatitudes. We'll be walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, specifically looking at the Beatitudes. So that's what's coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, honestly, this break wasn't planned, but... We do believe that God has his hand on our preaching series, and we want to be free and flexible with what he's teaching us as leaders um, and to be able to reflect that and, and share that with you guys. So this week we're going to be looking at one of my favorite chapters of all in Scripture, Jonah 4. Um, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible as well. So if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me to Jonah chapter 4. It's a minor prophet, so it's going to be after Ezekiel, Isaiah, all those dudes. And while you're looking there, um, what I want to do is just kind of catch up where we are, right? Because we're going to be at the end of the book. So Jonah, up until this point, is being called, chapter 1, is being called to go preach to the Ninevites. And this is important because Nineveh at that time, they were a violent people. They were known to flay people's skin. And if anybody doesn't know what that is, is they peeled the skin off of their enemies and just hung it on hooks. That's disgusting. They were violent. They oppressed the Jews. And Jonah was now called to go and preach the gospel to the people he hated. And so we see in Jonah chapter 1, God calling him to go preach the gospel to them. And if you don't know the story of Jonah, he runs away. Smart man, right? Thinking that he, he can run away from God. He's a prophet called by God. He knows that God knows where he is at all times, and yet he runs. He becomes disobedient to the Lord. And we see in Jonah chapter 1, as he's running away from God, he gets on a ship, gets to the bottom of the ship, kind of just falls asleep, doesn't even care that he's running away from God, and a storm comes. And through that storm, the people on the ship are freaking out. They're praying to their gods. They're wondering, like, why is this happening to us? Throwing things overboard. They're like, how can we stop this? And they find Jonah asleep underneath. And they're like, what are you doing, bro? Like, how can you be asleep with the storm going on? And Jonah's like, well, the storm's about me. I'm being disobedient to the Lord. And they, they immediately are like, well, what are we going to do? Like, pray to your God. And Jonah's like, you know what? I know how to stop this storm. 
just throw me overboard. And so we see in Jonah chapter 1, he gets thrown overboard. But as you walk through Jonah chapter 1, you see that his heart is still being disobedient to the Lord, even to a point of thinking if he's thrown overboard, maybe he'll just die. Like maybe he'll just drown so that he doesn't have to go and preach the gospel to the Ninevites. He hates them so much that he would rather die than go and preach that word. And we see at the end of Jonah chapter 1, him being thrown into the, into the water and God appointing a great fish to swallow him. And this is the story that most people know, right? Jonah being swallowed by the fish, being in the belly for three days. But Jonah chapter 2 is all of Jonah kind of seeing where he's at and realizing that he is not the Lord. And you see that in chapter 2, Jonah's prayer is not a typical prayer of like bargaining with the Lord, like, all right, I'll go to Nineveh if you just get me out of this fish. What Jonah actually does in his prayer is he actually appeals to God's mercy and grace. And he reflects, and you see in his words that he understands that salvation isn't his. That salvation is actually of the Lord. And so you see a small repentance. And he says, all right, I, I'm going to go do it. And so the end of chapter 2, God appoints the fish to just spit him out near Nineveh. So the beginning of chapter 3, you see Jonah walk into Nineveh. And he preaches the shortest sermon in all of history. Eight words. This is what he says. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he stops. He just walks out. That's it. And you see, as he walks out, he begrudgingly does this for God. So he still has an arrogant attitude towards the Lord who's calling him to go and preach the gospel to the Ninevites. The beautiful thing about Jonah 3 is that God does what God does, right? God saves. They hear Jonah's sermon, even though it was eight words, even though Nineveh was such a large city that he only walked a day into it. Nineveh was known to be a three days journey, which means that if you're walking from wall to wall, it would have taken you three days. He walks one day, just says eight words, and then just bounces. And God still saves. God changes the hearts of the Ninevites, even to a point where the king of Nineveh starts preaching, to the, preaching the gospel to his people. So God does what he does. And if this was a movie, Jonah would end after chapter 3, right? I mean, this is what we've been taught through Disney, through Pixar, that once the hero of the story does what he does, it's over. You kind of see this movie play out. Jonah gets called to a task. He struggles with doing that task. And then he falls out of grace, gets swallowed by a whale, repents, says, oh, Lord, okay, fine, I'll go do it does the task, everyone is saved. You can see the screen start to fade out into black, right? Jonah's probably playing with some kids in the street. Maybe there's a woman looking at him affectionately saying, hmm, Jonah's a nice man. And then you start to think, maybe there's a sequel to Jonah, right? Maybe the next time he'll be with that woman and they'll have some kids. I mean, that's how we've been taught, right? That's how we've been trained. Jonah 3 would be the end of that movie, but that's not how it ends there's still a chapter four because Jonah's not a movie and neither are our lives. In fact, Jonah is a story written by an older, more mature, more wise man who writes looking back on his rebellion, looking back on his blindness to his own sin and showing us a picture of the loving, patient God who is determined to work in the lives of those he loves for his glory and our eventual good. So let's take a look at Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And I still haven't found it. I'm sorry. Give me my introduction. Here we go. All right, Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? 
And Jonah went out of the city, and he sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up for Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, Yes, I do well, angry enough to die. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer and ask him to bless this time. Lord, we come to you this morning just pleading that you would break us of the stubborn hearts that are more concerned with our own pleasures than you and your kingdom. Lord, I pray that through Jonah, you would reveal to us where sin blinds us to the glory of you, that it would show us where you are prying us from our idols that we hold on to so dearly, and that we would be reminded of your perfect grace that saves us, sustains us, and has promised to make us into the image of Christ. Lord, this, may this grace compel us to go and share this light, to share the gospel that you have shown us. And Lord, this morning, use me as a vessel. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleading in your sight. Oh God, my strength and my redeemer, in whom I place my trust. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to make one point and kind of flow from that and what I see in Jonah as a whole, and specifically here in Jonah chapter 4. My main point here is that God cares about broken people. I'll say that again. God cares about broken people. We see this throughout the book of Jonah, as well as here in Jonah chapter 4. You see this in the beginning when God, God calls Jonah to go preach to a, a great nation, Nineveh who we would think would be animals, right? Violent people. God cares about them. God cares about the sailors on the boat. We see that through Jonah's wanderings, through Jonah running away, God still uses that time to save those sailors. We see God cares about the Ninevites in their salvation and repentance as God has called them to do. And then in Jonah 4, we see God is continually working on Jonah's heart as he shows him mercy through the object of this tree. And even today, for us as believers, this side of the cross, God cares about broken people. That includes you, that includes me, and God, that includes those that God has placed around us. So I want to take a look at God, how God cares for broken people by looking at two things from Jonah. I want to look at Jonah's sin of self-righteousness, that leads to a lot of different things manifesting itself in his life. And then I want to look at God's response to Jonah. And hopefully that will encourage us and give us hope that he too cares for us and that Jonah is also a book to teach us, to grow us, to make us into the image of Christ. So let's first look at Jonah's sin of self-righteousness. So the first one that we see, his self-righteousness leads him to forget about grace. So I'm going to tell you a story about myself. When I was younger... When I didn't get what I want or wanted, or when things didn't go my way, I often pouted, right? Anybody like me? They pouted, they just, yeah, I'm fine, I don't, whatever. I pouted, super hard, super dramatic. And I remember one time, my sisters, and even my little brother, who wasn't even alive, will never let me live this down. It was Christmas. And we as siblings, we were being pulled out of our house one at a time to get these gifts that my parents had gotten each and every one of us. Now, I come from a large family. I'm the oldest of six, most of the most wisest, best looking, all around best child in our family. 
Firstborns know what I'm talking about, right? Exactly. Thank you. But I was the oldest of six, and so we went from youngest to oldest. And at that time, we had four kids. And so my sisters went before me. I'm also the oldest of four sisters, so my life was a little bit hectic. But anyways, so my sisters started going before me, right? They get their toys. They're all screaming, yay, yay, I can hear them outside. And then my parents blindfold me, and they bring me outside. And they get this on camera. I walk outside. They reveal to me, taking the blindfold off, that they had got me this new bike. And my first response to them was, man, I wanted to skateboard. And I just pouted in that whole video. I'm just like, yeah, I guess the bike's nice, but I wanted to skateboard. Now, like, that bike was the best bike for me. It, I learned how to ride on it, took the training wheels off of it. But at that time, in that moment, I had a distorted view of the gift that my parents gave me. I was pouting over something that I didn't receive or I didn't receive the way I wanted it. We see here in a very deeper mindset, a very deeper attitude, the foundation of sin, Jonah pouting before the Lord. You see him get angry that God would save Nineveh. He gets so angry that the Hebrew would describe him as getting heated, like his face was boiling. Can you imagine him like walking out of the city and being so mad his face is red, not because he got a sunburn or something, but because he was so angry? That's how the Bible describes Jonah. He's angry at God for saving Nineveh. Jonah's sin of self-righteousness distorted his view so much that this anger turned into bitterness. It turned it into pouting. It also turned into justifying his own sin. It leads him to say that he would rather rather be dead than to rejoice in what God had done. A work that God had accomplished, right? Jonah didn't do anything. I mean, all he said were eight words and God still did the saving work. And Jonah's mad at that. Now, for me, I read this chapter, and I'm like, why can't I get called to go do that? Why can't I get called to go save a great city, right? It would be awesome to walk down Fountain Square and say, repent and believe, and the whole city comes to know the Lord. It would be awesome to go to the east side of Indy and go repent and believe, and people come to know the Lord. But Jonah here starts to pout. Jonah's sin is revealed in how he responds. His heart is revealed in how he responds to God. The first thing that we see is, and I already talked about it, he gets angry. He starts to pout. The second thing we see in Jonah is that he starts to justify why he ran in the first place. And the third thing we see is that Jonah is actually very bitter that God would save Nineveh. And I would say that he's very bitter that God would save Nineveh over saving his own country. And we'll get to that in a moment. Now before we get to this idea of blaming Jonah for being this horrible sinner. We have to take a look back and we have to ask this question, how often do we find ourselves in a similar, similar place? Bitter at God because he didn't do what we want him to do. Pouting because he didn't give us the blessing that we've been asking for. Or justifying our sin before him. Maybe you don't justify it before God. Maybe you justify your sin to yourself, which you're justifying before God, right? Even if you're trying to keep it a secret from him, he's still knowing. Whether you're in sin in your life and you're trying to find justification for it, whether you're pouting over what God hasn't done for you, you're just like Jonah. Or maybe you become comfortable with your own sin. You start to rationalize it. Gossip, porn, hoarding your money, coveting what you don't have, lying, right? Maybe you start to become comfortable that you rationalize the sin in your life instead of pursuing to kill it. This isn't anything new, y'all. It all started in the Garden of Eden when Adam, instead of manning up and leading his wife, tries to justify his sin by blaming God for giving him Eve, right? He's like, man, it was the woman that you gave me. That's why we're here. And that's what we do. 
But the reality check for us is that when we justify why we sin, what we're actually doing is belittling the cross and the price Jesus paid for that sin. When we justify our sin, what we're doing is making sin seem small and in turn making grace seem insignificant. When in fact the Bible does the very opposite for us. It shows us that our sin is so great that we need something greater to save us from the wrath of God. And if you don't think that's true, if you don't think that justifying your sin is belittling it, Jesus tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. How you talk or think about your sin speaks volume of what you truly believe about the grace and the cross. And here we have Jonah, upset with God, justifying his sin because he can't see past his own self-righteousness and can't see his own need for grace. He believed that he no longer needed it that the same grace that the Ninevites needed, he didn't need himself. He felt like he made it. And because he felt like he made it, the compassion in which he needed for the Ninevites was not there. And there's a story in Luke that I'm reminded of when I read Jonah's attitude. Luke chapter seven. It talks about a Pharisee, or Jesus being at a Pharisee's house. And he's around some Pharisees and, and a bunch of people are in this house and a woman comes in. And a woman starts to clean his feet with her hair. Maybe you know this story, maybe you don't. But in this story, Jesus allows this woman to wash his feet with her hair. And Simon, the Pharisee, starts to think, he thinks this, which is just the craziest part of this story. He thinks, if this man were a prophet, he would truly know what type of woman was touching him, for she is a sinner. And this is how Jesus, Jesus responds. And he goes, Simon, let me ask you a question. Which, I mean, if you're in that room and you're thinking something and then Jesus asks you based on what you're thinking, I mean, I'm walking out. Like, but Simon's like, go ahead, teacher, which reveals his arrogance just in that statement. And Jesus responds with a parable about two people who owed a sum of money, one large and one small. And seeing that they could not repay what they owed, the debt collector canceled out both debts. And Jesus then says to Simon, which one do you think would love the man more? And Simon's response is right on. He says, the one who owed the most, to which Jesus says, you have judged rightly, and he turned to the woman while still speaking to Simon and says, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus then turns back to the crowd, looks at Simon and says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And this is the heart in which we see Jonah, right? He doesn't understand. He's lost sight of the grace that's been shown to him as an Israelite, as a Jew, as a person of God. And when we have this same attitude towards those around us, we have lost sight. We have made small the view of grace that God has given to us in Christ. And Jonah, like the Pharisee, had forgotten the mercy and grace that God had shown. And therefore, he did not see the need to give it to anyone else. Which is kind of ironic, right? If you walk through all of Jonah... Really, the saving part of the Ninevites is a very small portion in comparison to the mercy and grace God continues to show Jonah throughout the book, right? It's amazing that when you get to Jonah 1 and Jonah runs away from God, that God didn't just go, you know what, I'm using somebody else. He didn't light him up, and we only hear about Jonah when we get to heaven because he's the guy that ran from God and got taken back home. God's mercy and grace even allowed him to be disobedient and run from him. You see, what Jonah did with Nineveh, we can all do. He saw them as the sinners. He saw them as the idol worshipers. They're the murderers. They're the violent people. And what he did is he played this comparison game, which we can all do, right? When we play the comparison game against our sin against somebody else, we're always going to win. Bob across the street, man, he's cheating on his wife. I'm not as bad as him, right? 
she's a liar. I mean, I, I don't lie like that. But that's what his problem was. Because he didn't see that he was just as sinful as they were. His sin was the same sin that Adam and Eve had performed in the Garden of Eden. He was disobedient to God. And if you walk back through the whole book, you see this. He was disobedient to the Lord's calling on his life. But he didn't see his sin as deep as theirs. And this sin, like our first father and mother, is the same sin we all commit when we are disobedient to the Lord. We're all guilty of it. But Jonah's self-righteousness and Jonah's disobedience led him to be bitter. Led him to be unforgiving, lacking in compassion, and showed that he didn't truly understand the grace that had been given to him. J.D. Greer, in the sermon on Jonah, says, A spirit of unforgiveness and a lack of generosity is an indication that you are out of touch with the grace of God in your own life. And Jonah was way out of touch. So let me ask you a question this morning. Where has sin disoriented your view of grace? That you have lost compassion for those around you? Are you seeing those around you with the same compassion that God saw you with? Or where does your life reveal that you belittle or don't fully understand grace? You see, the whole book of Jonah shows us that God cares for the broken people. This includes you and I. It also includes the people that God has placed around you. So that's Jonah's first sin. His second sin, or it's still under self-righteousness, but his second part is that his self-righteousness led him to make Israel his idol. You see, Jonah was a prophet of God, right? So he was called out from Israel to be a leader, to stand before them and call them to repentance. He was a Jew, and I definitely believe that he loved his Israelite nation. But his sin was that he idolized his nation. His identity was wrapped up in his leadership. And he knew that if Nineveh wasn't destroyed, that they would eventually overtake the Jews, and he would lose that status. He would lose the leadership that he loved so dearly. J.D. Greer, again, on Jonah says, there's two things we see in his idolatry and what idolatry is. He says that idolatry is when you build your identity on something other than God. And the second thing he says is idolatry is when you desire something more than God. So I'm going to walk through those two things really quickly with Jonah here. So the first one, idolatry, is when you build your identity on something other than God. This is the first thing we see Jonah doing as a prophet, as loving his nation. This idolization fleshed itself out in the form of being a nationalist who only loved his nation and did not want or couldn't even think that God would show love to anyone else, especially a country that oppressed Israel. And his self-righteousness led him to be so upset at God that he would rather die than see these sinners saved. His idol was his nation, and it manifested itself into racism, nationalism, whatever you want to call it. He viewed his nation as more superior than any other nation. Man, talk about something that's still important today, right? That's still important. No matter what ethnicity or nation someone is, if we are called followers of Jesus, we are to show the love of God to everyone. No matter what skin color, no matter what nationality, ethnicity, no matter what. God tells us in Micah that our charge is to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And this is one of the reasons that we strive to do an Imago Day series every single year. Because we want you guys to see the importance of every single person no matter what race, nationality, ethnicity, that every single person from conception to death is made in the image of God and they are made as image bearers and therefore they have purpose and value in their lives. And why the sin of racism is such an offense to God is because God has made us in that image. 
when you make your nation or ethnicity superior and you devalue another base on their color of skin, their nationality, what they believe in, you're spitting in the face of God and the image that he has made all mankind. And when you make your nation more superior, your identity is falling into the same one that Jonah had. My call, if that is on your heart this morning, my call is to repent and turn to the Lord because we are all made in his image. And as believers in Christ, we are to show that love to everyone. We can also do this identity thing, idolization thing with the gifts that God has given us in our lives. We see this in Jonah. The gift of being a prophet, he idolized it. And anywhere you tell yourself, I have worth because of fill in the blank, you are making and basing your identity out to be that thing. And when your identity is built on anything other than God's love and acceptance in your life, you become fearful and hateful when you feel like that thing is going to be taken from you. Or anybody that threatens you, you begin to hate and resent. And we see this all throughout Jonah, right? We see his resentment. We see his bitterness. We see his hatred towards the Ninevites. He expresses these emotions because he has found his identity in his nation, in his status of being a prophet and a leader. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, which if you want your mind to be blown, go ahead and read some of his stuff. But he writes in Sickness Unto Death that the essence of sin is basing your self-identity on anything other than your identity with God. And this is what Jonah was doing. And this is what we do when we take our gifts and place them before the Lord. This is what we do when we are worshiping our gifts instead of the gift giver. The second thing we see with his idolatry is, idolatry is when you desire something more than God. When I find more happiness in being successful in my career than I find in knowing the Lord. When I find more delight in being rich, more delight in the dream of being happily married, I've placed a desire before the Lord and I've created an idol out of that thing. I want to challenge you with a couple of questions this morning to maybe help you narrow down some things you might find identity in. And these questions may be hard. I'm not sorry for it. <laughs> They're a little tough for me because I had to ask myself these same questions. But the first one is this. What are you most terrified of losing? What do you obsess about obtaining? What drives you? What is the one thing you could not imagine being happy without? The one thing that without that, life would not be worth living. And what in your life have you made an idol that if taken away, you would become upset or even bitter? Is it your health, your children, your spouse, your savings, your ability to critically think, your athletic abilities, Whatever it may be, whatever you can answer honestly to those questions. They may be good gifts, but you might want to start looking at maybe some of your identity is wrapped up in them. Jonah found more delight in the prosperity of Israel and the destruction of her enemies than he did in knowing and delighting in God, or knowing and delighting in God that he would save sinners like Nineveh. And where is this same sin found in your life? Now, that was a bit heavy, I'll be honest with you, right? It's never fun calling out sin, talking about it. But Scripture does it, so I've got to do it too. But now I want to transition and look at the glorious grace and mercy that God has shown Jonah, but also extends to us. So we see in Jonah that God mercifully and gracefully enters into the mess of Jonah's life. And he does this by asking him a question. Do you do well to be angry? Basically what God is saying is, is it right for you to be mad? Or in our day and age, you mad, bro? That's what he's asking. But then God gives Jonah an object lesson 
listen to this, through discomfort. It's not through delight. It's not through a gift like he discomforts him on purpose. God patiently pursues Jonah's heart. And in mercy and grace, he gives him a tree and then takes it away. And you see God patiently pursue him even when he's angry by this object lesson. So let's take a look at it. He gives him a tree, right? And, and think about this. It's a tree like huge, large leaves. You know, I'm from Florida, so I tend to think of palm trees or palm branches. We don't really have those up here. It's fine. They would die up here. But So, like, you got to think of, like, an oak tree or something that's just going to give you shade that you can sit under and lay under and just kind of rest, feel a breeze. But after a day, God sends a worm to destroy this tree and then sends a wind to discomfort Jonah. So once again, Jonah cries out to God, and he says, I would rather die. Jonah is so concerned here about himself, right? His own comfort and his way of life that he would rather die than to praise God for the fact that he gave him a small gift of a tree. He would rather focus on that tree being gone than that God would even bless him with that covering. And God again responds, and he says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah once again responds, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity this plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And then here's the, here's the turn here. And God says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. What God is doing here, he's showing Jonah that his sin has distorted his view of what's truly important. Namely, the people in Nineveh, as well as their cattle. And it's interesting why God uses cattle. For Nineveh, that was their economic source. That's how they stayed afloat. That was what they produced. They're cattle ranchers. So, Cattle was important to them. So God is saying, you're frustrated over a tree that you had nothing to do with creating. How much more should I pity people who I created in my image and I am providing through their economy? Jonah's sin of self-righteousness had led him to this view. It led him to a view that his nation was more important, that his life and his comfort was more important than those Ninevites. So God in his wisdom, in his mercy and grace, showed Jonah, and he shows us through this book that sometimes the way to break an idol, to break the hands that we hold onto, the comfort and pleasure that we have, is to discomfort him, is to discomfort us. Charles Spurgeon on Jonah said this, I would suggest to some of you here that you have to bear double trouble that God may be preparing you for double usefulness, or he may be working out of you some unusual form of evil which might not be driven out of you unless his Holy Spirit had used these mysterious methods for you to teach you more fully his mind. So what we see here in Jonah, we see the object lesson that God is discomforting him to break his hands of the idol he holds on to. The idolization of his nation, his comfort, his hatred, his bitterness towards the Ninevites. And what we can take from this passage is that God, in fact, can do the same thing and sometimes does the same thing for us. God may, in fact, be breaking you of some idols this morning that you hold on to so dearly in order that you may see him rightly, that you may see him with more affection, and that you may see that he is making you into the image of Christ, that you would place your hope fully in him and not non-eternal sources. So guys, when we go through the valleys in our lives, this is why we can praise God. Because even though he may send us discomfort, even though he may send us areas in which we find trouble, it is a part of his plan to make us into the image of Christ, to make, him, to make us love him more, 
to see him as the greatest good that we've ever received. From cancer to miscarriage, from betrayal to sleepless nights and exhaustion, from slander to sickness, God is working in our lives to make us into the image of Christ. And it is his mercy to rid you of those idols that you hold on to, even through discomfort. Spurgeon goes on to say, remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you're in, divine love would have placed you there. And I know that discomfort may seem like a daunting thing, like why would God place that upon me? But remember that God is doing his perfect work within us. As followers of Christ, it's not wrath that's being poured out, but love and mercy that we would continue to be made into the image of Christ. So take this promise from Psalm 126. Those who sow tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. God cares about the broken people, and he cares about making us into the image of Christ, even through discomfort. You see Jonah, and I'm going to close with this. So Jonah 4, and really the whole book of Jonah draws a parallel. And if you haven't picked up on it, I hope you see this now. There's a parable, parable in the New Testament that Jesus gives about two sons. One who fights for his portion of his father's estate so that he can go and party and live on his own, right? To squander his living. And the other son who does all the right things. He listens to his father and quote unquote never disobeys. But when the youngest son comes home, repentant of his actions and the squandering of all his father's money, the father runs to him. He gives him a hug. He clothes him. He gives him, a he gives him a ring and a robe and some sandals. And he says, let's have a party for my son has returned. But what does the older son do in this story? He pouts. He's bitter. He's angry. And he stays outside of the father's house because he doesn't like the fact that the younger son is back and he's getting a party thrown for him in his honor when he himself has never gotten such a party. This is a parable of the prodigal son. And who does that older brother sound like? Jonah and us. When our self-righteousness leads us and distorts our view of those God has placed before us. But honestly, the parable, Jonah, isn't really about either of those sons because one uses the father for his riches and then he goes and blows it the other uses his father self-righteously he believes that he's supposed to get what he deserves but the parable in Jonah as well shows us and is more importantly showing us the love and faithfulness of the Father who's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love to both of his sons. And that same Father we see in Jonah patiently pursues his heart. That same Father that we see in the parable of the prodigal son is still pursuing us today. He's still showing love to the broken, to the self-righteous, to the unrepentant. You see, the book of Jonah is also pointing to a savior because Jonah is not the savior in that book. You know, I talked about how this book just kind of ends. Right in chapter three, it should have been the end of a movie. You look at chapter four and it's just like, should I not have pity for 120 people and then some cows? And then it just stops. But that's to show us that Jonah is not the savior in this book. He's the picture of the one to come. You see, while Jonah begrudgingly went to preach salvation to the Ninevites, Jesus humbly and willingly put on flesh, stepped out of heaven into our sin, into our shame, into our trials and temptations, and he came to earth so that in his death we could find life. Jonah left the city and went and sat on a hill to watch the destruction of Nineveh, while Jesus went up on a hill looking over Jerusalem and wept because they could not see the forecoming Messiah was in their midst. And Jonah wished to die because of his sin and self-righteousness and his anger towards the Lord because God would choose to save Nineveh. And Jesus, 
Jesus willingly went to the cross and died on our behalf, a death we so rightly deserved to take on God's wrath so that all of our sin would be imputed onto him and his righteousness would be imputed into us. And we, as Galatians says, we now live by the faith in Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. This is the love of God. And Jonah is not the Savior, but he points to the Savior who has come. And finally, I want to close, even though I already said it, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a pastor, that's what we do, right? We should probably close after every single point. But I want to give you some hope this morning. As believers in Christ, we can find this type of preaching daunting, right? And I, I keep continuing to mess up. I'm, I'm more like Jonah than anybody. But I hope you find some comfort in this truth about the sanctification of us as believers. So Tim Keller says that Jonah stands as a warning that human hearts never change quickly or easily, even when being mentored directly by God. And if that doesn't give us hope, I mean, I don't know what will. You got Jonah walking with the Lord and his heart still doesn't change. And if there's anybody in the book of the Bible that you can say, man, I'm just like this dude, it would be Jonah, right? You see Jonah, like, he gets called to go do something, he's disobedient, and God still patiently works on him and continues to work on him through these four chapters, continues to work on him. And then as history would show us, Jonah writes as an old wiser man showing his sin, showing how dumb he was, but showing the patience and mercy of God. That's why I'm like, man, Jonah is my boy. Jonah is, is me. Because how often do I sin? How often do I try to put sin to death a thousand times and say the last time was the last time, even though I said that the last time? Well, I think to myself, like, am I ever going to get this right? Yet what we have as believers, what we can put our hope in is that Jesus completed the task on the cross. And God's promise to us is to make us into the image of Christ. And the beautiful thing is that he delights in doing that. And we tell this story all the time, and I was thinking about it as we started this service. Like, when kids are starting to walk, we delight in their steps, right? We don't start yelling at them that they fell down. The same thing with the Lord. When we take two steps forward and one step back, we are still taking a step forward, and God delights in that. And it may be a marathon, right? It may not be a sprint to, to the end, to the glory, but God is working in our lives, sanctifying us, making us into the image of Christ. And so whether you came here this morning like Jonah, self-righteous, unloving, self-absorbed in your own life, and what God is not doing for you, comparing your sin to others and not understanding the grace that God has shown you, or if you're self-righteous, man, if you're on the other side of the pendulum and living in a rebellious lifestyle far from what the Lord has called you to do, and you don't think that he could save you or change you, or that you are too dirty for him to work in your life, you're not. Both need grace. Both need that mercy of Jesus, and both sides will only find their rest when they come and rest in him. Because this promise goes out to us all. My burden is easy and my yoke is like, come to me. And so if you're here this morning and you've landed in one of those camps, then put your rest and hope in Christ. He came for the self-righteous. He came for the sinner. He came for broken people like you and I to make us into the image of Christ, to give us the hope, the everlasting hope that we can hold on to. So I'm going to close us in prayer. The band, if they want to come up, um, we're going to take some time to just kind of reflect on what the Lord has done for us in Christ. We're just going to reflect on him going to the cross for us, for our sin, for our self-righteousness, and giving us the grace and mercy that we could not do ourselves. So let me pray. I'm going to give you some time to just reflect on that. And then we're going to continue to worship. 
We're going to celebrate in worship what God has done for us. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for grace. Thank you that even when we act in self-righteousness, even when we are rebellious, you are merciful. You are a merciful, gracious God who is steadfast in his love for his people. You are a God who pursues the broken. Lord, you are a God who promises to make us into the image of Christ. And so this morning, Lord, reveal to us where we have placed our hope in the things that you've given us. Reveal to us where we have placed hope in idols, whatever they may be in our lives, Lord. Whether it be our love for our nation, whether it be our love for our jobs, our spouses, our, our children, our money, Lord, whatever it may be that we can answer, if we lost that thing, we would be bitter and angry and upset. Reveal to us that idol not so that we can be down upon ourselves that we would sin, but reveal to us in your mercy that we can repent and turn to you and look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. That we can praise you for those gifts. And thank you for what you've given us. Lord, thank you for the grace of Jesus, who is the better Jonah, who came, put on flesh, lived this life, took on every trial, temptation, Lord, that, so that he can enter in and so that he can know our experience. And thank you for the sacrifice that he has done for us, going to the cross, taking our sin, our shame, so that we who believe can receive his righteousness. And so that in that, you can then delight in us as sons and daughters of God. Help us to be, help us to remember that prayer, that you are delighting in us, even as we walk in this world. And Lord, spur us on to go and share this light of the gospel with those around us. We thank you for Jesus. May you be glorified in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at